Hi folks, this is Ramesh Dariraj. Welcome to the Semco Style Institute Shape the Future of Work podcast. Hello everyone, I'm Harini Srinivasan, a behavioral science expert and a partner at the Semco Style Institute India. I'm also a partner at Semco Style Institute, a best-selling author, coach and mentor for CEOs and sales leaders. We want to have conversations with the smartest people who can help us understand the best way to manage companies in this new era that is unfolding right before our eyes. The Semco Style Institute was founded by Ricardo Semler and is headquartered in the Netherlands. We help companies improve business performance by unlocking human potential. Our practices are derived from the lessons learned at Semco, a company Ricardo inherited from his father. He has chronicled his experiments in his best-selling book, The Maverick and The Seven-Day Weekend. Our guest today is R. Gopalakrishnan, or Gopal as he is fondly called. He has been a professional manager from 1967. Uh, he has served as chairman of Unilever Arabia, as MD of Brookborn Lipton, and as vice chairman of Hindustan Lever, as director of Tata Sons and several Tata companies. He also serves as an independent director of listed companies, Castrol India and Hemas Holding PLC Sri Lanka. Gopal mentors a few startups. He is actively engaged in both instructional and inspirational speaking. He has authored 12 books, uh, the most recent three about how Indian companies grew to be successful, uh, which is what we want to discuss with him today. Uh, especially in the Indian context, how these companies succeed or crash and how to bring the heart and not just the mind into organizational transformations. Welcome to the podcast, sir. Thanks. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. Uh, your latest books are studies about how companies like Biocon, LNT, and TCS grew to be so successful. Uh, in your mind, what are the common threads that led to this, especially in the Indian context? I must first give you the background as to why we undertook this piece. It's not just a study of why they are successful. I popped the research question, what does it take to make a good company into a great institution? So this is not a success formula. This is about institutionalizing companies. And the thought came to my mind because I have been privileged to work in two great institutions, Tata and Unilever, both of which are 150 years old. But uh, if you want to build a red fort or a Taj Mahal today, there is no point uh, studying how Shah Jahan did it so many years ago. And therefore, I wanted to get a sense of who are the people currently building institutions. We define currently, and I use the word we, to say I teamed up with academics in the ASP Jain Institute of Research and Management. And uh, it's a rare occasion when a practitioner of long standing has tied up with uh, academics. Normally, there are two parallel streams which never meet, each one with the great disdain or contempt for the other, <laughs> which I think is a bit regrettable. Yeah. Uh, I therefore felt that uh, if you're in the technology space, then engineers and scientists must get together. And this is my attempt at trying to do so by uh, collaborating with them. And we said we want to understand what is the importance of institutions. Question number one. Who are the institutions who are Gen L 
meaning generation liberalization, which means they are 30, 40 years old. You don't want to declare somebody an institution. You know, can't say Flipkart or make my trip as an institution after 15 years or 10 years. But you don't want to wait 100 years either. So, which are the companies which came around liberalization? And uh, what is specially Indian about them? Because there are many great books about uh, good to great, lessons from excellent companies, uh, and so on and so forth. We recognized that there was a lot of uh, material on uh, good to great companies in the U.S. All written about for the last 20 years. But there is a cultural context to all management. Because business is a performing art. It's about human beings. And we wanted to get to certain companies. We put down some criteria, all of which I'm not going into right now. And uh, we selected about eight or nine Gen L companies, which means that they really came into the public consciousness only around the early 90s. Uh, they were unknown, if you go back before that. And uh, we wrote to those CEOs saying, would they collaborate with us in doing a research piece on this? We developed a master schedule of uh, what constitutes institutions, business institutions. We got a response from six of them. And so we decided to go ahead with them. This is not an award giving that there are no others. Six people responded. We took the six. And the three of them have been completed and published. And the books have come out pre-lockdown, which is uh, TCS, Larson and Tubro, and Biocon. And three of them are waiting for the lockdown to become, uh, to, to be lifted. And they are HDFC Group, Deepak Parikh, Uday Kotak in Kotak Mahindra Bank and Harsh Bariwala in Maricom. So we'll have a six six uh, books. Each one is a slim book. You can read it on a flight, but hopefully will be interesting enough for you to want to go back to because there's depth in it. And the research methodology that we prepared said uh, that there are eight characteristics, eight things that their leaders do. We broke them into two parts, three plus five. Three were common all through in all the six companies. Five were a mix and match. So we call it the three plus five matrix. And I'm not going into that in detail, principally because it will take a lot of time and the podcast is not the right medium for it. But we were very interested to find that the three that were common to all the, were practiced by them in a different way. So it's like saying, you have Sarigama Padanisa, in North Indian music and classic, uh, South Indian music, Carnatic music, but the way they are practiced and the sequence in which they are delivered are fairly different. So the outward look of the music looks different for Carnatic music and North Indian classical music or Western classical music, but they all have the same eight notes. And that's exactly what we found, that the three plus five are practiced. If I may take a different metaphor like a golfer, Three clubs you essentially require. You need a putter, you need a driver, and you need a you know five iron or something. And uh, the others are optional. You can you can mix and match. And we have produced uh, what I believe to be a very unique, a very distinctive, if not unique, piece, uh, piece of work. Because having outlined the principle, we are also illustrating the principle as different maestros have practiced. This is, I think, the first time that uh, in India, academics and uh, the practitioner have collaborated. 
uh, into producing something. And uh, there are no studies in India of good to great or institution building. And institutions are very important. Just these six companies that we have selected together accounted for over 35% of the Bombay Stock Exchange market cap. So if we had many more institutions rather than the fly-by-nights that we have which come into the newspaper every morning, wouldn't Indian economy be a great economy? So that's the background and that's the key finding of uh, our study. You've seen the world and uh, you know the different work cultures in different companies. Uh, how do different companies uh, in, you know, in different countries uh, demonstrate visibly the trust or the lack thereof uh, with their employees? Any striking examples? Uh, the reason I'm asking is that uh, trust uh, we've seen as increasingly one of the fundamental building blocks for scale and growth. Uh, and sustainable growth. And uh, uh, if companies don't demonstrate it, uh, it has a serious impact and therefore request. You know, trust is a very labile subject. It's uh, difficult to grasp and yet it's important. It's like beauty. When you see it, you can tell this is a trusting environment. But uh, it's not perfect. And beauty is also not that. When you see it, you can say that's very beautiful. But it's not perfect. There are imperfections in beauty also. I think there needs to be an understanding of what trust means. To me, trust means uh, it's the outcome of an emotional transaction between people when everything looks lost. When everything looks lost, there's an emotional transaction between the people who are in that situation. And when they come out of it, they have trusted each other and they've come out of it. That's trust. So trust comes out of uh, the test of trust is uh, that they have been through a very uh, difficult situation together. Now, when you think back as to what was the transaction between people who have been through a difficult situation, you start to see the elements of trust. It is like beauty is uh, if you have to describe it, you may say that, well, it's got to be tall, you've got to be slim, you have to be fair, you have to be dark hair, blah, 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 blah. That is not a description, but uh, it gives you an idea of what beauty is. So I want to illustrate this point. Three examples, very briefly, I won't go into detail. And when you're able to replicate that type of behavior in uh, day-to-day life with imperfections, then you create a trusting environment. I'll give you example number one. Uh, yesterday was the Taj terror attack anniversary, 26th November. It is something nobody had prepared for. It, lots have been written about it, so I don't want to go into the detail of it. But the way the management responded to that situation, the way the empathy was demonstrated to them, the way the management uh, responded in that situation, uh, the way people work together without a sense of hierarchy, caste, religion, you know, uh, survival situation, uh, demonstrated what trust is. It didn't define it, but it demonstrated what trust is. Uh, since a lot have been written about it, I don't need to define it, but there were some touching moments which showed what trust means. For example, when uh, Ratan Tata was being taken around to see the people who were injured 
and the HR head who was accompanying him was constantly looking for his approval of whatever actions had been taken. And at the end, he said, sir, is everything all right? Are you happy? He said, the question is not whether I am happy. The question is not whether you have done enough. The question is, have we done everything that we could do? Now, you see, that shows a certain way of thinking, which is very different. When people sent in letters uh, and checks, unsolicited checks for the reconstruction of the Taj, you know, somebody said, I am not a very wealthy person, but I am sending you a lakh of rupees. We put all that into a trust, bolstered it, and the trust was used, the trust meaning the uh, charitable trust, uh, was used for anybody who got injured. And the first recipients of it were a policeman, not Taj employees, a policeman uh, or somebody who died in the so, these kinds of elements make people feel that these are genuine people, they are empathetic. A second example I want to give you goes back to my Unilever days. Back in the late 80s, if you remember Assam had a lot of problems with the Mulfa and so on. And we had a tea estate there called the Dumduma tea estate. And the threats came uh, that unless we paid X, we would not, our manager's life would be. So, there was panic, understandably. Uh, since we could not allow our managers to pay and their families were in panic, we went to government, went to the army at their instance and arranged a military plane to airlift all the members of our management and families away from Dumbuna in a secret operation. So next morning when they said, let's go and meet the manager, there was nobody there to meet. And everybody was safe. Now this kind of story makes you trust that this management will not leave us to the wolves. And that's a very important point. And the third example I would like to mention is now forgotten that uh, back in the late 80s again, Tata Steel has something called a Founders Day. All over Tata we have a Founders Day which is 3rd of March. It's the birthday of Jamshedji Tata. And it is a massive show in Jamshedpur. And unfortunately there was a fire. Several people were either injured or uh, hurt. And the way Tata's responded at that time. You know, these are what I mean by crises. When irrespective of hierarchy, uh, caste, religion, anything, people are able to reach out uh, and work with each other. Now, in each of these cases, it doesn't mean that everybody in Tata Steel or everybody in Hindustan Labour or everybody in the Taj, they have a lovey-dovey, warm relationship. All that it means is you have created the elements of trust so that in your day-to-day -day behavior, you are not seen for perfection, but you are seen to be having an environment where we have been through tough things before. We can work together. And I think these are uh, important elements of trust. People think of trust not on Friday evening dancing together on the office floor. You know, that's not trust. So many organizations in India, uh, when we did some survey, have cited organizational transformation as a critical need uh, to improve uh, employee ownership and people alignment. Now, we know of several consultants uh, who focus on this transformation uh, and to quote you, uh, recommend uh, it as a non-cultural intellectual exercise where uh, the matters of the heart are uh, not factored in. Uh, how would you go about bringing in the heart especially the employee's heart, into such transformations. 
That's a very good question. And I don't have a formula to give you, but I want to share an experience with you. You know, what has happened is uh, the transformation specialists, the academics and consultants, have converted organizational transformation into a sort of programmable industrial engineered <laughs> process. Mm -hmm. Step one, step two, step three. Yeah. And if you're a consultant, you draw a linear thing with arrows in it, which just takes you to phase one, to phase two, to phase three, to phase four. Yeah. It's like saying, how do you raise your child? Is phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four. And you can write the key action points under each phase. But you try raising a child with that <laughs> formula, it won't work. Okay, every child is different, every parent is different, and every context is different. This programmatic organizational transformation is not able to handle. So, we should take programmatic organizational transformation as the discipline. It gives you the scaffolding, but that doesn't mean that you just follow it in a mechanical way it can work. And that's what I meant when I said uh, you must bring heart into it. And to bring heart into it, it must derive from the context. Just like a mother's love for a child. There may be two children of six years old. But whatever you do, the love for her own child of six years will be different from the love for the neighbor's child of six years. Despite all her attempts. Unless she's a mother Teresa or somebody like that. You know. Uh, you talk about uh, driving empowered workforces uh, as the magic ingredient to success. There are two aspects to this. Uh, one is the empowerment. Uh, and the other is the driving or steering them to success. And there is a lot of interplay between these two activities, steering and empowering. Where does one start? Should we look more at empowerment or should we be more directive? And when does uh, each one overtake the other? When you could drive something with the other person feeling that he's empowered, I know it sounds a bit uh, paradoxical. But when you can drive something with the other person feeling he's empowered, then you achieve the magic. It is uh, the classical statement about a leader where followers say, we did it. And the leader doesn't have to say, I did it. So, the act of driving or empowering must give space for other people to make mistakes. Because mistakes should be a part of it. I mean, I'm talking of honest mistakes. Not uh, defalcation or fudging or going to sleep on the watch. Um, many of the bosses are so wedded to an engineered view of management that they want perfection. It should be like a, uh, you know Olympic gymnast. You know, you've completed all the pivots in an absolutely perfect way. Management is not a perfect science. It is like music. It is like dance. Every time you do the same, sing the same uh, note or uh, do the same movement, it will be slightly different. It cannot be identical. And if you sit down and go by a second by second replay of it, you will find the differences. But management is like that. So when people feel that they can make mistakes, uh, which are honest mistakes, and there's a definition of honest mistake, which I shan't go into right now. Then they feel empowered. The second thing is, when you are directing people based on a capability, 
See, what is capability? Capability is this aggregate capacity of the system to do something. So it is not an individual person's competence. I'm making a distinction between competence and capability. Capability is an aggregate competence. So when a person says, I can handle this customer, but I need a better pricing for my product because I'm not in charge of pricing and you are able to support that person, then you are increasing the aggregate capability so that that person's salesmanship can be advanced or advantaged by the better pricing or whatever. Now, when you drive something, that person's got to be able to see that that's coming out of your unique capability, which may come out of authority over the or because of a skill, because you are able to do certain things that he doesn't know or you have a different perspective on the same subject as he. He doesn't mind it. And the third thing I find is that uh, uh, the person who's implementing feels that he has been given the degrees of freedom he requires, but he's taken instructions on things that he needs to take instruction. Then you get the ideal merging of driving and empowerment, which work. I'll give you one example because all this sounds a bit uh, uh, back in uh, the mid 90s. Uh, that is just before I joined Amherst. Ratan Tata got this idea that our companies uh, were very good companies in the old regime, but post liberalization, they must have uh, a drive to excellence. He also recognized that excellence will not happen overnight. You can't give a speech and expect people to be excellent. You have to understand what is excellence. So, along with his colleagues, they devised what they called the Malcolm Baldrige. They accepted the Malcolm Baldrige model of excellence, but they tweaked it. They set up a relationship with Malcolm Baldrige and they called it the Tata Business Excellence Model. And I don't know how long they spent. By this time, I had joined and I was on the committee. We spent a lot of time explaining what Tata Business Excellence Model is, what each of those parameters means, how you can go about improving on it and how they are measured. But the actual task of implementing and improving had to be left to the company. Uh, this required a lot of soap time. A lot of soap time. But whereas when we started, we had no companies, zero companies who were getting excellent scores. There is a measure of excellence. By the time I retired, I think at least 10 companies or 11 companies. We have about 30, 35 operating companies. And I'm leaving out the financial companies or holding companies and so on. And it shows you how long it takes to be able to be directing and empowering. And without becoming political about it, but just making a commentary on a personal level, if you look at some of the transformation programs that are going on in the country today, in India, whether it is CA, Farmers Bill, a New Education Policy, Labor Bill, it's not that they are all bad bills. It's not that they are full of bad ideas. But the way you have tried to implement it, is driving it and not empowering. And that is causing a completely unplanned reaction, unplanned as far as the center is concerned, planned as far as the state is concerned, of resistance. So if you want to write a case study on how not to implement, how not to empower, and how to drive, you can take some of the things in the public domain happening in the country right now, and you'll get a lesson of how not to do it. Just get up in the morning and announce some big bang stuff is not the way that uh, empowerment happens. Thank you. Uh, I mean
And in, you know, uh, just continuing on that, uh, the problem is that leaders now have shorter and shorter time frames uh, to produce results. So that is the challenge that they have. Uh, but at the same time, you know, as Peter Senge puts it, uh, you know, faster is slower when it comes to these kind of things. It's almost like if you're very aggressive with the bath, uh, you know, shower temperature control, it actually takes longer for you to reach the optimum temperature. So, uh, so how do you balance this? This sense of urgency that uh, leaders necessarily have to have. Uh, at the same time, uh, trying to get everyone uh, together as well as uh, you know, empowering them and directing them. So how do you how do you square? How do you balance these things? You don't balance it. Huh. They are yin and yang of the same thing. Okay. So it's like saying, uh, how can you demonstrate affection for your wife or family at the same time get the family to do things? Are they in opposite? Is there a balance? Do you have to be unloving to your wife to get things done? Or does the wife have to be unloving to her husband to get things done? But there will be occasions when one spouse will tell the other, hey, listen, here are the five things you have to do. I'm leaving it to you. Correct? They are not balancing. They are yin and yang. Okay. And I think we one thinks of these as balancing is perhaps itself effective. Okay. So I there is a natural cycle. Okay. There's a natural cycle that it takes. So these are not either or uh, things. Absolutely okay. not. And you must have the wisdom to understand the difference. Yeah. Okay. You've been generous in sharing your experience, uh, you know, 12 books, various speeches, uh, and you may have been asked this question. Uh, what do you think are the dangers that organizations and leaders in this day and age need to avoid? Uh, what can be done to recognize the warning signs early enough? It's a good question because the, the pace of change will accelerate technology and expectations and social change. And uh, you also need to know not only what you have to do, but what you should not do. And we always tend to emphasize the former and ignore the latter. In response to your question, I would like to point out three. I don't want to make a laundry list of it. The first is uh, ignoring the capacity of the organization to change. What has worked in company A may not work in company B because the capacity to change of company A and company B is different. Capacity to change, if you're dealing with a 150-year-old company, it has certain capacities to change. If you're dealing with a one-year-old startup, it has a different capacity to change. I'm taking two extremes to illustrate my point. If you're dealing with a child who's five years old, it's one thing. If you're dealing with your son who's now 50 years old, capacity to change is less. You tend to ignore this. You tend to, you, you go off, some consultant tells you this is what Volkswagen did, this is what uh, IBM did. So you say, well, let's also do the same thing. It may or may not work. So you have to assess the code of change, as I call it. Every organization, every company has a code of change. And you have to sit down and figure out what is that code of change and how far you can push it. There are reams of books on the subject of how do you assess this, but that's not something I can do in a podcast. The second is, uh, 
must learn to listen to the echoes from the cliff. So let me explain what I mean by echoes from the cliff. When a leader is, uh, a, a leadership team is leading a transformation, it's like a pigeon that is flying through the western guards or any mountainous area. Now, you may not be aware that pigeons have a unique navigational capability. And the navigational capability comes out of the fact that they can hear subsonic sounds, which are means below uh, 30 seconds, uh, 30 cycles per second, which human hearing cannot. So, by listening to the subsonic sounds of ocean waves hitting the shore, that generates a subsonic sound. Pigeons know where the shore is and that's how they navigate. We must learn to listen. Leaders in organizations must learn to listen to the subsonic sounds coming from their company. Whereas most of us are trained to listen to the sonic sounds. Oh, I just went there yesterday. I talked to everybody. They all said everything is fine. But below saying what is everything is fine, <coughs> the pause, the clearing of the throat, uh, I want to think about it. These are all non-verbal cues to know what's happening. And I have found that uh, people who miss these signals and take literally what it is that they've heard are missing the subsonic signals. And I call these the echoes from the cliff. So when the pigeon is flying through the mountain area, there are subsonic sounds coming from the walls of the cliff. And the pigeon can pick it up and it knows where the walls are. It doesn't walk into the cliff. But if it is a uh, aeroplane without uh, navigational aids, it will go straight into that because he doesn't pick up the subsonic sounds. So that's the second thing I would mention, danger to be avoided. I can't emphasize the importance of uh, listening to the subsonic sounds. And the third is having listened to subsonic sounds, having assessed the code of change, the transformation of the organization, the leader of the such an organization must adopt the tactics of a skier who's coming down the mountain slope rather than a rocket which is taking off. If you see the difference, a rocket which is taking off has all been programmed, its physics is known, its mathematics is known, its engineering is known and it goes just like that. And all you can do is to monitor and say, is it keeping to its trajectory? Of course it turns, but it's turning as per a predetermined when a skier comes down a mountain, he seems to never go in a straight line. He's adjusting himself to the gradient of the land. And it is to that that he must give his credit if he wins the game, wins the uh, match. Because the ability to judge the gradient of the land and the ability to change your, adapt yourself to that gradient. You won't expect the gradient to adapt to you. Whereas a rocket expects the atmosphere to adopt to its physics. And many leaders think that if they have a programmed transformation plan or a change program and it has all been detailed out week by week, month by month, day by day, cost by cost, the rocket will take off and everything will work. Whereas if they adopted the attitude of a pigeon listening to subsonic sounds and the skier coming down the mountains, they would have done a far better job. So those would be my three things to avoid. Avoid not being a skier, avoid not being a pigeon and make sure that uh, you assess the code of change. Uh, 
Uh, with that, uh, we come to the end of this episode. Uh, thank you, Gopal. Wonderful, wonderful insights. Really, really grateful uh, for you to share your time with us. Uh, and we hope to have you soon again back on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for giving me this opportunity to talk to Maverick Minds. I hope I've not demonstrated a Maverick mind, but at least a Maverick, <laughs> some Maverick ways of expressing uh, commonly misunderstood uh, aspects of management. Thank you and good luck. All the best. Thank you, sir. On that note, we will wrap up this episode of Shape the Future of Work from the Semco Style Institute. In future episodes, we'll be exploring how others shape the future of work in their companies. We hope you'll subscribe to the podcast and share the link on social media. We've provided a link to Ricardo Semler's books and his TED Talk that was viewed more than 3 million times in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening in and we shall see you on the next episode.